Welcome to Better You Live, an HCI podcast dedicated to giving you the tools, motivation, and inspiration you need to take things to the next level in your career and in life. Now, coming to you live from HCI's Main Street studio in downtown Cincinnati, here is your host, Alan Mellish. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Human Capital Institute's Better You Live. I'm Alan Mellish, and I'm your host. This is the HCI podcast where we give you tools, motivation, and wisdom to succeed in work and life. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone to rate and subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher Smart Radio. If you've got a comment on Twitter, use the hashtag HCI Live. Today's podcast is brought to you by HCI's 2019 Strategic Talent Acquisition Conference. Join us in Denver from June 10th through the 12th and learn how to beat the talent crunch. Learn more at the staconference.com. My guest today is Tyler Cowan. He is professor of economics at George Mason University, author of several books, including Stubborn Attachments, The Complacent Class, Average is Over, and he also blogs at marginalrevolution.com and hosts a very interesting podcast called Conversations with Tyler. He's also one of our keynote speakers at HCI's Strategic Talent Acquisition Conference. Tyler, welcome to Better You. Thank you for having me. Hello. So I have a lot of questions for you, but given our limited time, I figured I'd uh, get started with some stuff on the future of work. So when you consider the future of work, the way work is changing for people, the way jobs are changing, what makes you optimistic and what makes you more pessimistic? Well, let me start with the pessimism. The key quality needed for the future of work is the ability to retrain yourself. Because no matter what you do, software will change, technologies will change, maybe the contact you'll have with global markets will change. So the percentage of people in the American workforce who are really good at retraining themselves, it's simply not that high. You can talk all you want about the role of the boss or work training programs. I'm all for that. At the end of the day, you have to retrain you, no matter what the structure is surrounding you. And we have a big deficiency in that area. The biggest reason to be optimistic, I think, simply is the internet. The internet is the greatest education and re-education machine mankind has ever created. Right now, I think we're wasting a lot of the internet. We're using it in bad or destructive ways. Uh, That's reason to be concerned, but it's also reason to be optimistic because every new technology at first, we've kind of screwed up, if I may put it that way. And over time, we've gotten better at it. Like, you know, the book, the printing press, the novel, uh, even opera, comic books, and so on. They've all basically had problems at the beginning, and then they got better with time. So what were some of the problems with comic books at the beginning? Well, they were accused of rotting out children's minds, of drawing them away from Shakespeare and their school lessons, There was probably some truth to that. Mm -hmm. Comic books, even, I don't just mean recently, but with time, they became more sophisticated. You have, you know, DC and Marvel competing against each other, Mm. more interesting characters, better illustrations. They become culturally interesting. And they actually ended up motivating a lot of kids to achieve and excel. And the internet, I think, will follow a similar trajectory. Big mess at the beginning. Upside is clear. We'll get better at it with time. Absolutely. And so you've uh, spoken a lot about, spoken and written a lot about our increasing preference for safety, comfort, and familiarity in work and life. 
how is this complacency hurting our economy and more importantly, the people who are participating in the economy? Well, there's evidence that there are fewer new businesses as a percentage of total business. Uh, big companies stick around longer. By a lot of metrics, our economy is more constipated. Rates of productivity growth are lower. There's less turnover with respect to industry leaders. And maybe no one of those things is so terrible, but when you put them all together, I think it means a commercial environment where other than the tech sector, there's actually a fair amount of stagnation. A lot of things in our lives just aren't that different than a few decades ago. And that was not the case earlier in the 20th century. And I think people are okay with that. That's a problem. I wish they were more irritated, had a bit more pioneer spirit, thought more in terms of moonshots. Yeah. And so I guess what part of what you're getting at is that while the smartphone and the a lot of the products that exist essentially on the internet, like social media and all of that have been, or Uber is another example, is really disruptive. But outside that area, the way that my shoes are made, for example, isn't terribly different from the way it was 40 years ago. Is that? That's right. Airplanes, they're barely different. Right. In some ways, the experience of taking one is worse. So a lot of areas <laughs> yeah. we're making progress only slowly. Yeah, and driving on highways me. is often worse. That's right. Uh, taking Amtrak from Washington to New York, uh, that's clearly worse. The New York subway, uh, mixed bag, would probably on that it's worse. Mm. So that should not be the America we live in. And so that leads me kind of to my next question is, uh, what, what can organizations do to the people who are we're talking to are a lot of the time the people are coming up with the strategies of how to hire and manage talent, uh, how performance should maybe be measured, how uh, culture should be arranged in a company, uh, how hiring decisions are made. How can organizations and these people in particular that are focused on talent become less complacent in their approach? Well, to think more strategically about talent acquisition, realize that for most companies, every hire is really very, very important. And just to take what we know from social science, from the management literature, from psychology, and apply that to talent acquisition in a more scientific way. Uh, everyone pays lip service to that, but in my experience, very few groups actually do it and see it through and have a full commitment to the process there tends to be an overemphasis on the problem of the moment, which you sort of feel you need to fix, and an underinvestment in talent acquisition for the long run, which in any given moment never quite feels like an emergency, but actually it is all the time. Do it more, be, you know, panic a bit over it, realize it's probably the number one factor for how well your business will do. And is that because the people, is that because in a sense you're, the, the new people you're bringing into your organization uh, it's easier to bring someone in than to get rid of somebody who's already there. So it's more important to bring the right person in. Well, if you bring someone in, most hires last for a reasonable while. So that's just a major, major decision, much mm. bigger than whatever fire you put out today. They also make your other workers either better or worse. You hope better. But that means it's even more important than it feels. So just to really reorient the emphasis of the most talented people, uh, toward hiring other quality individuals. Again, I, and I know it sounds like a cliche, but rarely is it done to the extent it should be. 
Yeah, because yeah. It's, it feels like a really urgent emergency to fill this position now. And so maybe you accept somebody who you have mixed feelings about or the, uh, the assessment you're using is, uh, is not is suggesting maybe you shouldn't. Uh, but you, because it's an emergency in the moment, you're, uh, you're compelled to make the wrong decision or at least a poorer decision than you would. That's right. We're not programmed well to think about the long term. You see this with, say, uh, infrastructure development, climate change. We neglect as a society many long-term issues, and managers often feel they're immune from this because they're smart or they hold equity or they're responsible, but actually, usually they're not. <laughs> That's going to be news to a lot of managers that usually they're not that smart. <clears throat> well, they are smart, but smart yeah. is not enough, I think, is the key lesson. Yeah. And then I guess what's uh, what's your opinion of some of the ways that uh, obviously people use them or commit to the these processes to a greater or smaller extent, but uh, what's your thoughts on some of the areas where technology is uh, attempting to automate or at least become more scientifically oriented in uh, the hiring process, uh, what do you, where do you feel we're going there? In a good direction? Well, there'll be more and more use of algorithms to hire people or just to sort through piles of resumes. Mm -hmm. uh, this is inevitable. I'm not sure we should say it's good or bad, but if you do it wisely, you can sample a broader pool of applicants. Uh, but I do think human intuition and judgment will not lose their importance anytime soon. Think of those as complements to the algorithms. Mm -hmm. Algorithms enable you to scan a large pool, but at some point you have to figure out, does this person have the drive, the potential to get better, the ability to make other people on the team more effective? Is this person a kind of option on future promotions? Could they someday be a senior leader in the company? Mm -hmm. And algorithms are not close to substituting for human judgment in most of those cases. I see. And so uh, you also talk a little bit about, uh, or you talk a lot, I should say, in your book, The Complacent Class, on our preference for matching, uh, matching online with relationships, with romantic relationships, uh, matching ourselves with uh, food choices that uh, appeal to what we already like, um, and then also there's some level of matching going on with employment too, isn't there? And that could that uh, that could easily be part of the complacent the complacency that you're uh, that you're uh, against in that book. Yes, you know, overall, I do think we're better at matching. The internet enables you to see more things. Mm -hmm. uh, but say talented people who may not have a college degree or postgraduate degree, we mm -hmm. match away from them too often. Mm -hmm. uh, we play. It's easier to play it safe when you have data on everything. Yeah. And you can justify your choice. Well, this person had an MBA from you know that school, so you have to be careful not to get carried away by matching same to same too often, and to look for the different, the outstanding, the unusual. What do you feel about some of those uh, cultural hiring assessments? We'll call them where it's looking at. Uh, it's looking at not just somebody's ability intellectually or their uh, or their drive necessarily to succeed, but some of the cultural um, touchier feelier bits of the uh, bits of the personality. Is this person a good fit for Google's culture? 
do you feel like that's uh, that's setting yourself up for too much of a homogenous culture in your organization when it would be better to have a big mix of uh, a better mix of diversity of thought? Well, I put a priority on culture myself when I do my hiring, uh, but I think that the culture should be a culture which is diverse and challenging. So if your culture is healthy, it will be fine to do that. Mm-hmm. Focusing on culture, if your culture is too conformist, it will make you worse. Yeah. Uh, but that's not an argument against considering culture. I'm a big advocate of doing so for most companies, most institutions. Mm-hmm. Or identifying perhaps the culture you would like to become aspirationally and hiring right. towards that profile. One thing I would stress is any procedure for hiring is only as good as the people you put into it. Mm-hmm. So if you think the cultural approach is correct, but you have bad people applying it, uh, you will make your company worse. So even advice, which is good in the abstract, if you're not filling the right people into the boxes, I would say uh, it will harm you more than help you. Um, And I think what's your, beyond the talent acquisition lens, um, what do you advocate for organizations, both uh, private corporations, but also some of these public institutions, uh, you know, universities, all those sorts of places that uh, in the complacent class, you are uh, at least partially indicting for, um, for still keeping America and their in stasis. What do you advocate for these institutions to do to, I guess, revivify themselves, become more dynamic? Well, as a country, I don't think we're taking enough risk we hold too many safe assets. That's why the rates of return, say on T-bills, have been so low. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether a particular company should take more risk, I don't think you can say yes in all instances. Right. But just to realize you're living in a conformist situation where too many people are sleepwalking, and maybe, just maybe, that includes you too, I would say that's the place to start. But I also stress that in a corporate context, knowledge tends to be highly contextual, differs across sector, across company. So, you know, beware too many generalizations and look for the people who know about the actual task or sector you're working in and, uh, you know, prioritize their expertise. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, and then changing speeds a little bit, what can we do on an individual level to become less complacent just sort of in our daily lives? Well, there was a very interesting experiment run by Steve Levitt, the Freakonomics guy, yeah. and he looked at people who were on the verge of making big life decisions, but people who are wavering. And basically he studied ex post, those who opted for the change versus those who didn't. And the people who opted for the change ended up being much happier or they were doing better than the people who didn't. Hmm. So that suggests not enough of us are opting for these big changes. So if you're sitting on the fence, odds are, you know, there's a good chance you should do it. Uh, Let that be a nudge to maybe do it rather than not do it. Again, it doesn't mean everyone should do it, but we're probably not doing it enough overall. That's uh, th- that's very interesting. And um, it's uh, comforting to me as somebody who just moved across the country in the summer. That, Excellent. Uh, from where to where? Uh, from Cincinnati, Ohio, where my wife is from, to San Antonio, Texas. Ah, oh, two great cities. Yeah, congratulations. So the, that, uh, what, do you love, what do you like about Cincinnati and what do you like about San Antonio? Cincinnati, you see a a much older version of America in the architecture. There's still a feel of the German-American tradition, 
I love different forms of Cincinnati chili, especially, you know, the cinnamon five way. And it's just a great kind of old style sports town uh, that has a lot of integrity and real neighborhoods. And, you know, parts of it are beaten up, but it feels like a real place. And uh, San Antonio is super dynamic. There's, you know, the Latino element integration with Mexico, wonderful barbecue, uh, river walk area is fantastic. And it's just a big sprawling place with diversity everywhere and a lot of opportunity. I couldn't agree more on both those counts. The, uh, oh, and Geta, have you had Geta? I don't think so, what is it? Okay, so <laughs> this is a bit of a departure and I apologize to the listeners, but I have to tell you about Geta. It's um, basically, so far as I know, and it's an invention of the German immigrants where they take sort of this mild pork sausage yeah. and they uh, mix it up with pin outs and uh, to sort of gum it together. And it's a sort of breakfast meat. And oh, you I would like that very much. Yes. And have it with eggs. It's great. I'll try it next time. Absolutely. Gleer's Geta. Go for it. Yeah. <clears throat> so then, uh, so I think the, uh, oh, my producer, who's a Cincinnati native, just told me that it was made for the Depression. It was a, to stretch the sausage. So that. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> so uh, that leads me to uh, really my final series of questions here. Thank you so much for your time. Um, you're a well-traveled foodie. I didn't mention this up uh, up front, but you did write a book, uh, a, "An Economist Gets Lunch." Um, so, what strategy should I use to define uh, to decide where to eat in Denver, where the SDA conference is going to be? Well, it's remarkably like hiring people. So, I mean, you can study food as much as you want, but the best way to find a great restaurant is to ask someone who's there. So you have to pick the right person to ask. That's mm -hmm. like a mini hiring decision. You want someone who looks smart, who gets around a lot, has yeah. a kind of integrity in their eye, is open enough to chat with you for a little bit. Someone maybe who works in a transportation related sector. So they've been around town and had yeah. a lot of meals outside the home. So the anthropology of knowing whom to ask is much more valuable than knowing a lot about food. Very much <laughs> a hiring decision. So ask like a cab driver or uh, perhaps Fireman. a police officer if you run across yes. one. Don't ask someone too young or too old, right? People too young eat out to socialize. Uh, people too old often have not eaten out that much at all lately. Uh, someone say in the age range 35 to 53, I think is perfect. Excellent. Um, so, and last of all, uh, your, uh, your blog, Marginal Revolution, I'm not just trying to plug it, I do read it fairly often. Um, it seems like you're always reading things with a lot of wide variation in topic and focus. Um, so I wondered if it might be helpful for our listeners to hear uh, from you, what's the best way to consume new information, learn more about a new subject, especially since we started off talking about the idea of you have to learn how to teach yourself new things? Well, I think uh, learning how to write out your ideas is an underrated skill. Even if you will never be a writer or publish anything, to spend some time writing, uh, it forces you to figure out what you understand about your own ideas and what you don't. Uh, not enough people do that. They think of writing as something that only writers do. I think also the return to having a well-curated Twitter feed by which I mean not too much politics, not too much that will depress you or irritate you. Huh. People tweeting about substance, 
links and facts you're interested in. It could be management. It could be the sector you work in. I feel that is still much underrated. People think of Twitter as a sewer. And yes, the sewer element is there, but it doesn't have to be. So those are my two tips for virtually anyone. Write more and curate a wonderful Twitter feed. That's uh, That relates to my own personal theory that the internet and to a certain extent Twitter, although as you could say, you can kind of curate what you see in your Twitter feed. Uh, the internet is kind of like Freud's three levels of consciousness. There's the <laughs> id where it's all, you know, the baser animal urges. And then there's uh, the, the ego that's all about sharing my stuff on Instagram and look at me. And then there's uh, the higher order things that are maybe what you're talking about, where you're uh, exchanging ideas and thinking about things outside yourself. You know, I would say the internet makes smart people much smarter, <laughs> and uh, not smart people brings them further away from smart. <laughs> be the generous way to put it. <laughs> well, I can't think of a better note to end on than that. Um, so, Tyler, what's the best way for people to stay up to date with what you're working on? Well, they could follow me on Twitter at Tyler Cowan. C-O-W-E-N. They can just Google my name. I have a podcast series, Conversations with Tyler, and my blog name is Marginal Revolution. Again, Google will get you there. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. Once again, if you want to hear more about Tyler's thoughts on this topic, make sure to sign up at staconference.com, where we have live and virtual conference passes available. And for all ideas related to talent acquisition in HR, check out the Human Capital Institute at hci.org. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion, please email us at bestu at hci.org. We might just read it on the next show. Don't forget to like us, rate us, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Alan Mellish. <laughs>